Welcome to the Sound Meets Sound podcast. This episode, I chat with librettist Kendra Preston Leonard and composer slash mezzo-soprano Lisa Nair about their One Voice Project Micro Opera Festival. Thanks for joining me, Kendra and Lisa. Yay! Um, we're here to talk about your One Voice uh, Micro Opera Festival, which is very cool. Um, can I just, can you tell me a little bit more about uh, what One Voice is and how that started and the, yeah, the inspiration for that? Yeah. That's all, Lisa. I'll start. Um, it's been about seven or eight years now that I've been very interested in solo vocal performance within our sort of classical and classical aligned traditions, because, you know, every other friend of mine who plays other instruments has a solo unaccompanied repertoire that they regularly play that's part of the standard rep. And singers don't have that, you know. Um, I was lucky enough to perform a few pieces by a friend of mine, a, a fellow composer at a festival that were unaccompanied, and they were, you know, exciting and challenging and, you know, made me work and learn about my voice in different ways than I ever had because all the repertoire I'd learned before had been with piano, piano reduction, chamber. Usually the chamber music includes a piano or has a piano reduction. So like that was always such a huge part of the landscape of learning music as a, as a soloist or as a chamber musician or as an opera musician. And the other thing I was finding was that there were a lot of opportunities as an emerging performer while I was finishing my doctorate and getting myself out there that, you know, maybe there was an opportunity to perform for a summer festival or perform for a community event, but these spaces were not always spaces with pianos. There was not always a pianist collaborator who was as equally excited about some of the opportunities as I was. So I was going to have to shell out money, understandably. Everybody, you know, needs to be compensated, but maybe for me it would have been worth it to sort of just put myself out there and build my resume and challenge myself. So without that, I was yearning for the autonomy I saw my flute player friends and my violinist friends, my chess friends. So I started to curate and I performed a whole concert called The One Voice Project, took it on tour in Iowa, slowly have been adding pieces to it. Um, and then, you know, I think in the back of my mind, there was always this question like, some of these pieces that were being written for me were, were of the very challenging contemporary music um, concert style that, that really didn't have a lot of allowance for like memorizing within a reasonable amount of practice time, but like how cool it would be to have repertoire that, that could be written with the idea of memorizing and of staging involved. And then enter Kendra and I starting to collaborate, which we, we met on Twitter. And then when was it, Kendra, that we actually started to sort of say, let's look for projects we can collaborate on? Oh, my gosh. It was two years ago or? Yeah, it must have been maybe two years ago when um, Lisa had put out a call for texts for some work she was doing. Um, and we got in touch that way. And she had this opportunity to write a piece this past year for Arwen Myers. Um, That's right. Who was looking to do a concert, sort of a, a home concert, pieces that she could perform by herself or accompany herself with the piano. So with like very minimal piano. 
Um, and so I had this poem that had been sitting around for a while. And it was very short and seemed to, to be just the right thing. And Lisa set that for Arwen. And so it's voice and it's clapping and it's stomping. Um, and that really sort of got us started. And we thought, wow, there are so many other pieces we could do. And with the pandemic, we thought there's a huge, there should be a huge number of singers who really want to be able to perform something right now that doesn't require an orchestra, that doesn't require them to be on stage. And, and we've just gone from there. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah, thanks for that background. And uh, Kendra, I guess I'm just a little curious about how you got into, I, I, have you always written texts like poems and librettos? Well, not always, no. but how did you come into that? <laughs> I have always enjoyed writing. Um, you know, I was the kid at school who liked doing the research and reading the five different editions of the book and, and you know, writing the paper and doing things like that. Um, but I wasn't really confident about doing creative writing for a very long time. And I started my career in music as a cellist, and then I stopped playing because I have a chronic illness called lupus that limits the mobility and use of my hands somewhat. And I became a musicologist and a theorist, and I love doing that. I, I still love that. I love the research, and I love analysis, and I love writing it up and you know, sort of uncovering the mysteries and, and the history of music and people. But the year before I turned 40, I thought, you know, if you want to try something creative, you know, you don't really have anything holding you back. There's no reason not to. And I had tried writing some short fiction and prose with the, the exception of some very short prose things, didn't really feel that comfortable to me. I'm still kind of grappling with that. But poetry fit really, really well. And so I wrote a poem and I sent it off to, you know, journals and magazines and it was accepted almost immediately. And that kind of gave me the, the encouragement, the boost that I needed that, oh, yeah, I can do this. Someone else out there thinks that this is, this is decent work. Um, and because both as a performer and in my work as a musicologist and theorist, I had specialized in music of the 20th and 21st century and had wanted to be that cellist who went out and premiered all the big new pieces. Um, you know, I was still really drawn to new music and wanted to be involved with new music. And as I started writing poetry, I thought, oh, kind of like, duh, you can write lyrics. You can write things. That, that are part of new music, Kendra, come on, you can do this. Um, and, and another thing that, that really kind of uh, encouraged me to do it was that I had, I had read this anecdote about Marie Curie late in life, and it immediately occurred to me, you know, I immediately saw this scene where she's on vacation with her daughters uh, at the sea, seaside, and it immediately came to me that this has to be a biographical opera of Marie Curie. And so I started working on the libretto, and that was eventually performed. The opera was done with music by Jessica Rudman. It was performed in, in 2018 at Hartford Opera Theater. And that's walking into the rehearsal for that and hearing people sing words that I had written and communicate the same things that I had intended in those words just left me absolutely speechless. And I thought, this is, this is what I need to be doing. You know, I don't need to give up the other aspects of my musical life, but I need to incorporate this in a meaningful way on a regular basis. 
So when Lisa and I started talking about the idea of short operas, you know, places, opera companies and people were looking for short works even before the pandemic uh, yeah. started. And so I thought, you know, this is exciting. These are these are pieces that people are really going to want to go hear. You know, not people talk about, you know, bringing new audiences to opera, right? A lot of opera companies seem to have this as their brief. And I keep thinking the way to do it is not by setting Wagner in 21st century Manhattan. It's by writing new pieces that are not four hours long and full of sexism and racism and anti-Semitism and everything else, right? It's not just restaging old pieces with all of their problems and trying to mitigate those problems. It is creating pieces that don't have those problems, you know, and really promoting those. So I'm just super excited to be doing this. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. And you you kind of answered my second question there about how how this festival specifically came about. Um, I, I do think it's yeah, it's it's been happening. Yeah, definitely since before the pandemic. But this rethinking of opera and uh, Lisa, like you mentioned, uh, and you, Kendra, like the I feel like the pandemic kind of sped up that desire to rethink opera and and just singing in general um because because singing especially was and still is considered especially dangerous in the mm. pandemic you know because mm. of the particles <laughs> so um yeah it's it's really been interesting to see how this has all been playing out um in terms of this festival I saw in the press release that you talked, you all talked about how you collaborated with the the singers uh, themselves to create these, uh, like the Wide Awake in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, so can we talk a little bit more about how that works, both in terms of the the composition and the libretto? Uh, how how was that? How did that collaboration work with you all? Yeah. Do you want to start, Kendra, on the libretto side? Sure. Yeah. So, um, like you said, we wanted things that could be personal to the singers that they, you know, felt an affinity for. And so, Lisa interviewed Hugo Vera and Zach Finkelstein, who do the two pandemic-related pieces, about what they might want in those, because we had a pretty good idea of what we wanted to do for the other three operas. But for them, we wanted to know kind of what was on their minds. And Hugo had just moved to LA and was talking, you know, a lot about how it, it felt very uncertain to be alone in a new place and to be teaching without ever having met his students face to face and not knowing his colleagues at all and having never even been on campus and things like that. So I worked with him to craft a piece that, that dealt with those topics. And he also asked, um, I could include some phrases in Spanish. Uh, he wanted to have that aspect as well. So I did that and then he corrected my grammar, which was good um, and, and necessary. Um, and then for Zach's piece, he talked a lot about, about how he wasn't sure what was gonna happen you know, in the opera world next and where things were going. And he talked about being angry with the companies that had, you know, not fulfilled their end of contracts and had not paid singers and musicians and would he even trust singing for them again and things like that. So with him, I worked on a piece that is very 
meta-theatrical, uh, I think in a lot of ways, where he sings the role of the singer who is concerned about these things, right? Um, and he's worried about what's going to happen. And at the very end of everything, there's, there's some uplift uh, because he's able to go get his COVID vaccine. Um, so both of the operas have, have sort of happy endings. I wanted endings, we're in such a bleak period and things, it's, it's easy to write things that are just, um, that are emotionally wrought and that are unresolved or that are left in ways where the audience feels a lot of despair. And that despair is real. And that's not something that I wanna brush aside, but at the same time, I wanted these particular pieces to have some kind of hope. I wanted a, a, a hope punk ending, kind of, um, as they say in, in genre fiction, right? Um, so the opera for Ugo ends with him looking out into the new city and being excited about all the places that he'll be able to go soon, not immediately, but soon. And for Zach's, of course, it ends with this, this uplift of, oh, I can get my vaccine. Things are gonna get better. There are still going to be struggles. There's still going to be conflicts over whether I ever go sing for this company again or how I manage this or that. But there is, there's a light, you know, at the end of everything here. That's great. Elisa, do you want to talk about that you're part of the collaboration? Yeah. Um, we always, I mean, when all the work we've done, we do always talk as the, the libretto is being developed and, and all of that. But then you know, as, as it moves into the composition stage, for these pieces, for any pieces, I'm always in contact with who I'm writing for. I always love to talk to them on email or on Zoom or phone about what do they feel they do really well? What, what makes them say, yes, I love this in a piece? What are some of their favorite pieces? I listen to their recordings. There's a lot of kind of incubation so that I really can hear their voice or if it's an instrumental piece, you know, they're, they're playing in my ear. And then sending drafts, you know, how is this, you know, up a step, down a step, you know, do you need more preparation? How's this vowel? I, I'm a singer. So a lot of that stuff comes very easily to me, but there are differences, you know, and, and as people will hear, you know, we've got two tenors, Ugo and Zach are different tenors. You know, um, uh, Ugo, dramatic, you know, uh, tenor, and then, and then um, Zach is a, a very lyric Bach, you know, fantastic choral and choral soloist and, and other things. So you'll hear that difference. Um, Maggie O'Connell, you know, dramatic mezzo, and I'm on the lighter side. So people will hear that. And, and so I love to talk about that. Um, yeah, and then... For me too, I'm always thinking, as I write, I'm always thinking about the theater of it. Um, and I know so is Kendra. Where Where is their physical action? Um, where have we left space? Where in a concert piece, it's a different approach because there isn't necessarily gonna be that movement. But I think even in a short monodrama, that's important. Um, and you know, um, the other opera that we developed really inspired by uh, life events was was me. I'm singing as Catherine Switzer, who famously was the first woman to run as a registered runner for the Boston Marathon. Um, I'm a runner. I ran my first marathon when I was 19. Uh, my time was very similar to hers, which is exciting. Um, and that's been a really moving thing for me to work on when we talk about this idea of telling new stories through opera. 
I don't think I quite realized how much I needed to sing an opera about my love of running and sport until I started to choke myself up singing Kendra's words. Um, so it's really, it's really powerful. It's just, I think, storytelling that is connected to our lives, that is connected to the, the depth and complexity of human experience is really, I think it's really powerful. I, I can't wait to share that with other people too. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to to hear all these pieces. And I, it's like just radiates off of both of you how excited you are about this project. So that's really, that makes me even more excited to, <laughs> to, to see them. Um, the, the one question I had was, and I... There's different aspects of this that I want to touch on, but to ask about your feelings about the limitations versus or and the opportunities of the virtual format or the online mm -hmm. format, however you want to call it, live streaming. Mm -hmm. um, so to, to get your feelings on that um, and then also to maybe touch on some of the technical side of it like are, are they live is it true live streaming or have they pre-recorded and are going to stream that way and we were talking about already how zoom warps the sound so i guess let's start i'm sorry to throw this is very unprofessional of me to throw like 10 questions at you <laughs> once good. But i'm really interested sorry. to hear both of your your viewpoint on the the limitations versus opportunities of the virtual format let's start there <laughs> Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the opportunities is access, you know. Um, so it used to be that to attend a concert outside of, you know, maybe an hour or two radius was a really big hurdle that would be quite difficult for anyone to do. And and that also might mean that, that certain kinds of performance that are really might be really attractive to some people they may not have access to based on where they live, you know, and then likewise, you might have sort of this niche that that can't attract as big of an audience, but could if you had a, a national audience. So now we have a national audience. And because of the diversity of, of the careers and the networks of each person involved, we're pooling that. And that was one of the goals of the project was to share you know audience pools and to share enthusiasm and to share um across with each other to bring all that together and the power of of that you know on the flip side the, my feeling really has been throughout this whole year that that creating anything now um it takes four or five times the effort and and time for like one half of the length and in some ways we're we're leveraging that by keeping things really small. You know, you can watch these operas in five to seven minutes, you know, um, maybe even less for some of them. Uh, but, you know, I had my day when I put my microphone in the bedroom where I always put my microphone and I plugged it in the way I always do. And I did my sound check and I put on my headphones and it was cutting out occasionally. And I had the freak out because there's only a few days in the week I can record easily where there's not traffic and there's not this and that. And, you know, I've been up for the last four hours drinking fluids and warming up and becoming a peak performer. 
And I'm not going to let that stop me, but it's not easy (laughs) because it is. It's like getting ready for your marathon and now being told, like, you got to run around the block for the next two hours and fix the, the car and fix this, you know, and then you can run. And you're like, but I was ready to go. <laughs> so right. I don't know, Kendra, what else What else can you add? I know you have different perspectives, too. I just want to say that the, the point that Lisa made about accessibility is really important to me, too. As someone who's chronically ill and can't always go to performances, even local ones, being able to watch something that's live or watch something that was recorded yesterday or, you know, three weeks ago has just opened things up for me. There are all these organizations and performing arts organizations that kept saying, we can't possibly put this online. We can't possibly video this for anybody. We can't, it's just too much. We, it's too expensive and we don't have the technology, blah, 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 blah. It's right. It's like, if it's not accessible to you, that's your problem. You should, you know, find a way to get out of your house and do it, right? Um, and now everybody is, oh, of course, we'll put everything online. This is going to be great. And so, you know, it's it's a silver lining to the pandemic, I think. And, and I'm really hoping that performing arts organizations and scholarly organizations and everybody, you know, continues to realize that they're reaching a greater audience, that they're able to reach people who you know, previously would not be able to hear any of these performances or see any of these productions. And that's really important to me. Um, As far as technical aspects and and doing the work, I really think I have the easy part. Everything that I do is, it's done first, right? Lisa will sometimes come to me and say, I have this idea for a melodic line. Can you write something that will fit it? Or I really want to have this passage somewhere can you make sure it fits somehow? Um, and I'm always happy to do that. I, you know, that's that's fun for me. You know, or a singer might say, you know, these words don't really fit well for me, or I have trouble articulating this. Can we change those? But that all happens early. You know, the libretto is is one of the first things that happens. Lisa and I will talk about an idea, and we might outline it a little bit about where is the action. What kind of action is it? What does the character want to have happen? Or what are they reacting to? So we have all that all that at the very beginning and then I write. Um, and while I might make small changes later on, they're always very easy for me to make. I'm not married to any of my words to the point where I'm gonna tell a performer, no, you must sing this line that I wrote. It's so perfect and you know can never be changed, whatever. Um, so for me, I feel like my role at this point has been, you know, working with publicity and, and getting things out there for the festival and trying to be supportive of the singers in any way that I can. Although, of course, you know, there's not a whole lot I can really do on a material basis in terms of helping with technology or, or anything like that. So I'm there for, for moral support. Um, and as a non-singer, I'm always just overwhelmed by how amazing they all sound. Um, you know, so as, you know, some of the singers have made recordings to send to us to preview as we're going into the week before before performances. And I just sit there and I'm like, how do you do that? You know, it just sounds so good. And, you know, I, I've taught at Westminster Choir College and I've worked with a lot of, of vocal students at the University of Houston. And I know about vocal production. And I think I would like to think that I know something about text setting and writing for the voice. At the same time, I'm not a singer. And so there are things to me that are just always kind of like, how do you hit that note? 
how did you do that? I could hear every word so clearly. How did you, that's amazing. <laughs> you know, so I'm not the person who says, you know what, um, the microphone faded in just a little bit there and the balance wasn't quite right. And I could hear, you know, your foot moving against the carpet in your studio. I, I'm not, I'm not that person with projects like this, you know, in part, because as Lisa said, we're putting in so much time for short pieces, right? I'm not going to be the person you know, who is like, oh, no, we have to record the whole thing over because I could hear your shoelace coming untied in measure 67 or, or whatever. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are people who will say that. But for this for this kind of project, you know, that's OK. You know, I mean, it's it's fine. It's perfect just the way it is. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally get that. And I'm the same way, I think. Because it's on video, a lot of times the thought is, oh, I have to make this like a recording I would put on a CD or Bandcamp. But the reality is when you're sitting in a performance space watching someone perform, all kinds of weird little things happen. You know, as John Cage famously put on display in his piece, Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, like, we are human beings that make noise. You know, like someone drops their pencil off their music stand or someone comes in late or unwraps a cough drop. You know, I think this, I, I like when I can see the humanity of the performance, you know, like, because... As a performer myself, I know it never, ever goes perfectly. When you're in the studio, you're recording multiple takes and then you cherry pick and then you put it together and you EQ it and you compress it. You know, like this is not, that's not what live streaming, these, these live performances are, even if they happen to be in a video format. So as you can tell, I feel passionately about that too. <laughs> I don't like the nitpicky, you know, um, I, li I like the idea that you could hear someone's shoelace untying. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess to expand on that in terms of the day, uh, uh, when they are presented to the public, are, will these be pre-recorded things that you're streaming or uh, like, will they be performing them as a live stream? Yeah, they'll all be pre-recorded and then they'll be dropped each day on as a YouTube premiere. So at five o'clock Pacific each day, they will have that premiere, you know, moment. If people are able to tune in, they can do all their reactions if they so choose, but then they'll be up to watch in different time zones. You're contacted by some people in Europe who wanted to watch and sorry, 5 p.m. Pacific is like 2 a.m. Central European time. So tune in the next day. Um, and then people... This is grassroots, you know, this was like me and Kendra and five of our, well, four, I'm one of the singers, four of our singing colleagues, you know, saying, let's make something happen with what we have or can reasonably acquire. Um, we are not, you know, a major opera company or a major symphony with a, with a, a base of donors, with infrastructure for you know high def video with things that we can mail to people you know wonderful cameras i mean people have done amazing things even small ensembles but but we're just we're just you know six people <laughs> so um so we looked at a lot of different ways that people have been creating opera and other kinds of of pre-recorded concerts and it can be and maybe you know as people are finalizing their 
their choices this week. As simple as a nice placement of a single, single camera and a mic and one take. And then for others, um, for me, I really didn't feel like I could sing as Catherine Switzer running the Boston Marathon without being outdoors and, and running. And that's not so great for acoustics. So that is a going to be more of a video production look where the audio has been laid down and there will be a couple different takes and I'll be lip syncing um, and, and it'll be super exciting. And my fiance has been strong armed uh, into being a cameraman. Um, so it'll be, it'll be variety. And I think that should be interesting too, you know, for, for audiences to see what's possible. I like that idea of the music video. Um, and I, I think, especially right now, when everyone is all, like it's, the term goes, Zoom fatigued, I think having them be short productions is actually an advantage, you know, because yeah. everyone has yes. been glued to their screen for over a year now. So those short bursts, I think that's great. Um, Yay! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's interesting to know. It'll be sort of a variety. And so each of the performers was responsible for figuring out their staging and recording process and stuff like yeah. that. We so. each had, Lisa and I had a rehearsal with each performer. Okay. Where, where they could ask us questions about oh. the music or the, the libretto or the stage directions. I come from a school of putting in very few stage directions because I want performers and directors to have autonomy in making those decisions. I don't want them to be tied down to things that might cause the production not to happen because it's too difficult or too picky or too technical. Um, so we talked to each one of them and they sort of walked us through how they were going to do their performance. And we looked at different angles and we looked at different options with them. And I think they're all going to be very different. Um, they're all approaching things in different ways and they all have different technologies and areas, you know, places to use. But I think the end result is going to be five really different, but equally captivating pieces. That's really cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to see those. Um, since we have a little time, I, I would be interested to hear uh, more about your both of your thoughts about about the industry. I mean, even if the pandemic hadn't happened, there's a huge reckoning going on in terms of just the music industry, like capital M, but, you know, especially in terms of classical and classical adjacent, uh, how people see it and fund it and things like that. Uh, because for me, you know, I don't drive, which in New York City wasn't a big deal, but now in California is a huge deal <laughs> and I've most people are like oh another zoom concert and I'm like yay I get to go to concerts again right? <laughs> that like, accessibility we need that I'm like please don't stop doing this like yeah. when we're back in person you can stream it I don't care about like if it's the perfect quality or multi-camera I just want to like go you know yes so uh, I'm I'm pretty pretty pro all this and i i do think the technology will catch up eventually in terms of sound um but yeah i you know i guess it's on my mind because i wrote this post recently about the baltimore symphony orchestra and 
It, yeah, I guess, but I want to leave it open. Just, I'd like, I'd love to hear both of your thoughts if you're willing to share, like how you see, not just in terms of opera, but the industry in general. Elisa, you kind of touched on it, you know, in terms of freeing up the singer to sing by themselves, which I think is really cool because tying a singer to a piano, which is very, uh, you know, 12 notes, you know, whereas a singer can sing like this multitude of notes. I, I just think it's really cool to liberate not that I don't, I, I love accompanying and singing to piano, but I, it's really cool to liberate the voice from that. So yeah, um, uh, at some point I will stop talking and then you can talk about your feelings about the industry and, and where you see this going, especially in, in light of the pandemic. Um, either one of you. Kendra, do you want to? Oh, I was going to ask you if you wanted to start oh. off. But, um, so it's, it's interesting um, to think about this, especially right now. I've been thinking about this a lot. Uh, American Lyric Theater has been putting on a bunch of presentations, I guess, webinars for librettists, and I've been attending these. And they have made me sad because they are so rooted in what people think of as traditional opera. We have to have three or four acts. We have to have these kinds of characters. We have to have this kind of story. The story has to be told in this particular shape. Right there are there are these things right, and I listen to these people who have won Pulitzer prizes and who are vastly celebrated for their operas, and I think your operas are boring. I don't want to go to a four-hour opera ever. I don't. I don't. I don't want to do that. As much as I kind of miss like dressing up a little bit and leaving the house, I don't miss driving to places. I don't miss all the crowds. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that I that I don't miss. Meg, like you said, you know, being able to attend these performances without having to drive, without having to worry about all those things um, really means a lot to me. And I'm hoping that other people for whom that is um, a concern will speak up about it. Uh, one of the things that um, I was thinking about recently is how to apply the concept of own voices, which comes from fiction to opera and own voices is this idea that maybe white men shouldn't be telling the stories of black women in opera. Maybe we should find a way so that black women can tell those stories. And maybe people who are neurotypical shouldn't be telling stories from the point of view of autistic characters. Maybe we should let autistic people like me write those stories or tell those stories, right? So it's not to say that if you're white, you can't write a book that has black characters in it, but it is to say that we should stop ventriloquizing through the written word. And for me, that includes not just fiction or plays, but also opera libretti. Um, you know, I, I see all of these pieces that are composed by men who are trying to address things like domestic violence um, or, or issues like this. Um, and I, I feel kind of uncomfortable with them to a certain extent, right? That I want the industry to, to, to sort of think about the emotional effect of that, right? And I see lots of operas, and Lisa and I have talked about this, and, and I've talked about it with other collaborators as well. Is that Max? 
He's so fabulous. I want to write a piece for Max. That is my cat. I'm so sorry. It's not I love him. I want to write a piece for Voice and Max. We're going to do this. That's a good projection. He does. We have recordings of Max that (laughs) go along with something someone sings. Um, That sounds awesome. But I was thinking that there are so many operas that are even modern, recent operas that project messages of abuse and violence um, that end badly for everyone. And I'm not going to name names about operas here. Um, I'll just say that some of them are based on films and, and things like that. And I just feel like I don't want to put that out there. I don't want the industry to think that that's all that there is to bring in audiences. I want I want to write operas that are about resilience and, I, and about people who are um, self-reliant and people who are, you know, self-motivated and, and groups of people who are supportive and work toward common goals. I want things like that. I want, I want more uplift and maybe it, it sounds corny or cheesy. And I've heard people say, no, you, you can't do that. You just, happy endings are you know, that's not serious, but I think we can write serious operas that address important issues that don't end, you know, like Hamlet with everybody dead on the stage. Well, yeah, and it's interesting because when you were saying I want to write uplifting and, and groups of people being resilient and things like that, I was immediately started thinking of musicals. And there is this divide between the musical and the opera, and I see that line kind of blurring you know, mm-hmm. and because I think there are serious musicals and uh, that have an uplifting tone. So I think I think that's really interesting to think about what is it opera versus a musical theater piece and, and how do those things separate and why can't opera incorporate some of the themes that are just sort of taken for granted in musical theater? At least that's right. how I... So just last night, I was listening to a presentation by Anthony Davis, who was talking about his opera, Malcolm X. And he had just started learning about Malcolm X and was reading about him. And somebody said to him, oh, you've got to make this a musical. And Davis said, no, Malcolm X isn't a musical. He's an opera. And I thought, what does it mean? And I'm not criticizing Davis for saying this because I, too, you know, with my Marie Curie opera, I was like, this has to be an opera. This isn't a, a musical, right? We have this elitist kind of thing ingrained into a lot of us, I think, especially those of us who studied at conservatories, right, where that was what was being taught, was that opera is the pinnacle of voice with orchestra, right? It is, it is somehow higher or better or loftier than the musical, but like you say, Meg, that line between what is a musical and what is an opera has has really blurred a lot. And it's still hard for me to think of, oh, I could take this subject, a serious subject, you know, and does it is it opera? Is it musical theater? What what makes the difference there? You know, I think part of what we are talking about there is an audience difference, right? I mean. People don't think of going to see Hamilton as snooty. It's a musical, right? Because it is labeled a musical, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but if also you like go a singing see, style thing, too. Right, that too. That's but what if I you always go think. see <laughs> Ariadne Alfnaxos, oh, it's, you know, we have to put on our ball gowns and, 
you know, arrive in a limo or whatever. It's, it's this whole cultural, um, it's cultural baggage. Hmm. You know, I think we have to sort through it. I think there's a lot of sorting to be done, you know, yeah. not to put things in categories, but to figure out why we feel the way we do about the categories we label certain genres with. Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. And yeah, Lisa, I think I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this too, but you, you already sort of touched on a topic, which is singing style. Mm -hmm. And I think as a singer, I'm really curious to hear your take on this thing that we just sort of accidentally landed on, which is the musical theater opera thing. Like, yeah. what is your take as a singer in terms of that? Yeah, I mean, the thing that's so fascinating is, um, you know, we are starting to see institutions that, that in the past taught exclusively classical techniques start to, you know, bring in a wide variety of singing techniques. You know, this we have this fancy word, contemporary commercial music or CCM styles. Um, and many classically trained singers and, and teachers of voice are trying to learn that so we can empower our students who are coming to us and wanting to sing in those. So in, in that way, like, I think that's great because like, um, if you set up shop and say, I'm going to teach voice and you have, you know, seven out of 10 students coming to you saying, I don't want to learn opera. I want to learn musical theater or I want to learn jazz, you know, then, then it's incumbent on you if you take them to know what to teach them. And I mean, that's your responsibility as a teacher, you know, and then on, you know, on the other hand, I, I know that we specialize, you know, and I'm a triathlete. I'm a triathlete who comes in as a runner first, a cyclist second, and a swimmer way third. And this is how every triathlon goes for me. If you can look at your ranking, leaving the water, leaving the bike, and leaving, and then at the end, it ends with the run. And I pass so many people on that run. I pass these guys who were, they've got these big biker thighs, and they are just, you know, they were even slower than me in the, in, the, in the swim, right? So what does this tell me? I believe in cross-training. And I also think that when you talk about like opera singing, which is elite athletics, it's normal that some people learn a certain set of musculature, a certain style. It becomes a default. And maybe those people can easily switch and some of them may not easily switch. You know, why do I write opera? Because I have friends who are classical musicians and because I, for one geeky, strange, who knows why reason, I just really love the sound and I love musicals too. But that legato sound, those overtones, turning your, your head into an amp, there's no other way to do it. You know, all the other things are super cool, you know, but all those other styles that we really think about, the popular music styles that we really think about now are miked styles that wouldn't carry. And that doesn't make them lesser or better. It just means there's a reason why in the 1600s we started to develop this style. And it's kind of a dorky, geeky thing to be in love with. But I do. I do love it. Um, yeah. So I don't know. There's a whole bunch of thoughts. There's also yeah. like, you know, how do you get a musical made versus how you get an opera produced, really, I mean, different, ni neither better nor worse. Um, I love, I love working with acoustic musicians in real time, which I know is not exactly what we're able to do at this moment in the pandemic. 
But like, I love that. I love it as a performer. I love it as a composer. I'm not personally as excited as a performer or as a composer about singing to a synth orchestra or about um, having to pace my, my rubato off of something played back, which is not all musical theater. And it may even be some classical, but it, it is some, right? It is some. And the thing that I really love to make, if I think about my passion projects, it is like a black box style, small, cool space, live music performance with classically trained and other adjacent artists. You know, that's, that, that's just my dorky skill set and group of friends right now. Um, maybe in the future we'll write a musical, Kendra, that'd be fun. Um, yeah, but as I, whenever I think, whenever people say, well, why isn't Phantom of the Opera an opera? I say, because they're miked and because they don't, you know, Christine sings pretty, pretty operatically, but even, even she's changing her vowels, you know, she's, she's singing not as operatically as an opera singer would. And there's nothing wrong with that. It just, it's a stylistic difference, you know? Um, right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to, I, maybe the chief difference here is is the physicality of the singer as they're producing sound, you know, yeah, because... Yeah, the overtones, yeah. Right, yeah, and that idea of creating a microphone inside yourself. Because um, I remember when I went from singing quasi-opera, you know, I trained technically as that uh, for a little while until I realized I just did not have the voice for it. But when I switched that to microphone, I was like, whoa, this is a totally different ball game, you know, in terms of if you try to sing like an opera singer in front of a microphone, you're just going to blow out the PA, you know, you're just not going to sound good. So it's, you have to completely adjust the way you think about sound production. Yeah if you're using a microphone, but it's interesting to, you mentioned that black box space, because I think that is where the two genres can kind of get mushy when you have that freedom really to just have a blank space and you have your live musicians, you know, instrumentalists there uh, to, to play off of and, and stuff. And maybe you can, have a blend of different singers and, and the microphone isn't as much of a, an issue because the space is smaller. Yeah. But yeah, also in terms of just production, you know, that's where I'm, and I know you all are thinking about this too. And, and I think Zach's opera, it sounds like it's like, this is how, are, how are these going to be, these things going to be funded, you know, especially mm-hmm. when stayed, you know, institutions, are unwilling to upset their board members or certain donors by breaking out of a lot of like what you were talking about, Kendra, these, these uh, very narrow conceptualizations of what opera is. Um, For me, that's, that's the big question mark is like, how, how much longer will this, (laughs) this out kind of outdated, model sustain itself um i mean the met is basically about the collapse right yeah you know, yeah people are called people have been calling for peter gelb's resignation for a really long time but you know the singers haven't been paid the musicians aren't getting paid they're getting locked out that's yeah. that's huge other opera mm-hmm. companies are stating their solidarity with met musicians yeah. rather than the administration there yeah um i think we are probably going to see smaller companies emerge um, 
companies that maybe don't need huge sets, right? I mean, how much did they met pay for the machine, right? That's used for all of the volume wrappers, right? The machine, <laughs> right? It's cool, French fries. <laughs> I guess, right? But the cost of it is obscene. When you think about how many musician salaries and how many singer salaries you can pay because you wanted to have this big, cool thing because you, you know, needed to show off how much money you had, but you didn't want to put it in your people. You wanted to put it in your material stuff. So when Lisa talks about the black box theater, I mean, that's exactly, you know, what I think of what I'm writing for. I am a Shakespearean scholar as well. And I look at Shakespeare plays, which have very few stage directions and yet get amazing productions of all sorts of imaginative things because they don't have those directions, right? Because they're basically for a black box where you can do whatever you want. Um, so I really think we're going to see smaller companies that come out of sort of regional organizations. I think we're going to see companies that put money into tech and do online productions only, you know, maybe doing, you know, and that will involve people from all over the world and they'll have funding to do that, I think, because they're so distributed, right? Because local supporters in a variety of areas are going to be interested in that because it will go out online to everyone. It won't just be, you know, we're only going to show it in Houston or whatever. Um, so I, I think companies are going to change quite a bit. At least I'm hoping. I'm hoping that we don't go back to what we had before, where it's just big companies ruled by their boards and by donors who aren't interested in in changing things in any kind of really meaningful way. Yeah. Yeah, I... Go for it. Oh, no, no, go ahead. I was going to say, like, one of the powerful things about going small, you know, we, we knew when we did this project, we weren't going to be making up for anybody's, you know, lost salary level gigs with our pay-as-you-can system. You know, it was sort of an effort-first, we-get-paid-last sort of... Thing, a labor of love but you know when you go small a lot of things are possible because you're centering it in in the artists and in their vision and the conversations that came up with you know um, Audrey and with Maggie and with me and Kendra as we designed mine and with Zach and Hugo were you know what is it you wish you could sing about and since no one else gets to decide, we get to decide. And, you know, all those stereotypes Kendra was, was mentioning, those are bad for men too. <laughs> I mean, yes. I have a dear friend who's a bass yes. baritone and he's, he's told me like, I'm so tired of seeing the sleazy guy. Like, I don't want to be this person. Right? It's, it's not interesting. It's not helping anyone. It, it's kind of gross. I'm bored with it. It's not fulfilling, you know. And so, um, you know. You need to our, write an opera for him. Yeah, we we totally do, you know. And we have an opera being premiered this summer um, virtually with Opera Elect um, that's, that's about a woman and her breast cancer diagnosis. And as we were writing it, we couldn't believe there wasn't a more prominent breast cancer opera that we could think of. Probably there is a tiny, amazing one somewhere that we just haven't aggregated. But, you know, I think the power of if you go short and tiny and your budget is small, you don't need as many donors. Anybody can fund that. It's like the consortium commissions model for yeah. producing. 
Um, so I have a lot of hope in artist-centered work. And then, you know, with complete transparency, this artist-centered work that is a labor of love, it means we all have other jobs. As artists often do, it's not, it's not a magic bullet, you know, but I also think when, when paying work got canceled, when there wasn't art to make, or there wasn't as much, when the gig calendar dried up last year, there's a whole set of people who didn't have the energy to do something creative as a passion project. Totally get it. I had periods like that too. And then there was another group of people or there were different times for those people where there was a great desire to create, to channel their brilliance. And that need was there to share something. So we can do that. I, I can't, I don't have a complete, a complete economic fix for everyone, but I know we can do that as one part of our work while we also do other kinds of work to, to feed ourselves and to put money into our, our retirement accounts, which is also important. To feed Max. To feed Max, yes. <laughs> Who's now somewhere else happy. <laughs> yeah, I, it, that is, that is, you landed right where I've been sitting for uh, a long time, but especially since the pandemic and I see all my performer friends, the kind of the reaction as, as the months went on and the gigs just kept getting canceled and then not scheduled at all because it was going on and on is this idea that, yeah, we all are, I mean, most of us make art in the cracks of life. You know, we mm -hmm. have our paying work and we have our, home responsibilities and family responsibilities and then we find these times you know often shoehorning in these times to make to, to follow our passion and like you say that that can be very liberating and it's certainly I think better than the huge board status board let's be honest you know that's why you're on a board usually of a huge institution is for status uh, or donate donating is the same thing you know there's there's a lot of freedom not having those structures in place but yeah there really has to be a middle ground there where maybe we can make some money mm -hmm. you know like I you know I make very very little money on Bandcamp but I do it's you know a trickle of of money on Bandcamp and I think that yeah we the especially the classical and classical adjacent we have to find a way that the passion can also just at least at first trickle in the money and i think i i was really glad that you all were charging for this thank you because i think that's important to you know especially at first when we were all figuring out how to do all these things uh i say we like everyone else i have not attempted to try to figure it out. Um, you know, it's like, oh, it's free because it's not live and mm -hmm. we don't know what we're doing. And But I think now we're at a point where everyone is deserves to get something, you know? And uh, mm -hmm. so I think that was, that was good. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that's a really good place to stop. I, you know, I think it is this kind of, it's tempered, but there is this like hopeful place that we're all in where it's like, oh, we get to, to make these things that are important to us. Uh, like you say, artist-centered. Um, do you all have anything else you want to mention about the festival or anything else before we stop? 
I, I do want to invite people um, to the talk back. One oh, of the yeah. things that we're offering at the end, you know, you watch the operas whenever you like. They drop at 5 Pacific Monday through Friday. But then on Friday, March 26th, at 510 Pacific is a Zoom talk back moderated by Gina Morgano, the host of the Practice Parlor podcast. And it's an opportunity for um, for people to come hang out with us, lift a glass, ask your questions, get to know the artists. We'll have, I believe, everyone there or maybe maybe minus one person depending on scheduling. And so that is our live component. And it is also pay as you can, but you do have to sign up to get the link because we are limited to a, a number of people that we can have in our Zoom room. Um, so that would be my last little piece of info for people. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. I meant to yeah. mention that. Kendra, anything else? I'm just really excited to have these pieces out in the world and performed by such great people. We've got we've got runners, we've got a golfer, we've got a woman who's a swordswoman, and I had wanted to write an opera about you know swordsmanship as a as a former competitive fencer and fencing coach. I was so excited to do that one. We even did a stage combat lesson with the singer uh, over Zoom. Cool. You know, and we've got we've got all of these pieces that are about resilience and perseverance. And I just want to invite people to come and sort of revel in that feeling because we all we all need it and we all deserve it. Thanks for joining me on Sound Meets Sound. Be sure to click on the links in the description to learn more about Kendra and Lisa and to get tickets for the festival.